Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, continuing through verse 12, and I'm going to speak on the subject of the beginning of overseas missions. I want to share with you about a church in the book of Acts that is just desperate and yearning for the presence of Christ. And it, it ultimately changes the world. It ultimately impacts the fact that we're here today. So we're going to look at the beginning of overseas missions through the church at Antioch in God's Word from Acts chapter 13. And as, as you make your way there, if you're, if you're not there already, I just want to remind you of sort of where we are in the story. And Jesus is winning. He's, he's the king. He's ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father. He said he's going to pour out his spirit and he's going to give power and we're going to become his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And if we thought that that just meant the apostles, we're already beginning to understand that means the church because we see people other than the apostles going in the power of the spirit, proclaiming the gospel, and people are being saved. I mean, Jesus is winning at every turn. He's winning Jews and then Gentiles. He's overcoming the world and Satan even as they seek to dethrone King Jesus by punishing the church. Nothing is stopping the advance of the gospel. And today... We see the next phase in God's people embracing their role in his mission to glorify his son in all the earth. Today we see the church move from proclaiming the gospel almost by accident, right? Peter has to have a vision to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, The church has to be persecuted before they leave Jerusalem with the gospel. But, But now we see sort of a shift in the church to oh no, something had to happen to make us go share the gospel to, hey, why don't we go share the gospel? They take the initiative by, in getting the gospel to the nations by sending out spirit-called, church-commissioned missionaries. So this morning, remember we were in the church in Antioch in chapter 11, and then we moved to Jerusalem with the offering that was taken because a famine was going to come to Jerusalem. And then at the end of chapter 12, Saul and Barnabas return to the church at Antioch, from which they were sent with the offering, and they bring John Mark with them. That's where we jump back into the story, all right? So we're going back to Antioch this morning in Acts 13. We're going to read the first three verses, think about those for a little bit, and then then the remaining verses this morning. So would you hear with me the Word of God? Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Would you pray with me? God, help us to ingest your word today. God, to take it in. God, I pray that you would mold us and make us and shape us. God, you're the potter. We're the clay. We need you. God, we want to be, in many ways, a church like Antioch. God, help us to see 
the sort of church that you use to reach the nations, the sort of church that you use to, to call and commission missionaries so that the nations might bow before your Son, your, your glorious King and Savior. And then God, mobilize us. Mobilize us, some, some to go to places that, that haven't heard. And some of us, God, just, just across the street to share with our neighbor. God, help us in the hearing of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to see in verses 1 through 3, the short version, that's a long sentence. The short version is this. The sort of church God uses to reach the nations. The sort of church where, where God is at work to, to make a difference beyond their local community, but to have a, a global vision of impact, the Spirit we see in this text, sets apart missionaries in churches characterized by diversity, devotion, desperation, and dependence. Diversity in their membership and in their leadership, and then devotion to God, desperation for God, and dependence upon God. You say, well, that's a lot in one point. It is. I cheated. I got four points in my first point. In chapter 11, we saw that the Antioch church was was taught by Barnabas and Saul for a full year. And now we read in verse 1 that others have now been added to the church's leadership team. They, they don't have elders yet, but they're on the direction, in the direction of, of having an elder team. And this is sort of like a, a prototypical elder team to lead the church. And what we see is that churches honor Jesus by identifying and raising up new leaders. They don't want to get static and just stick with the leadership they have. They're always thinking about who is God raising up to be the next generation of leadership for this generation and future generations. And I want to say something about seminaries here. I am grateful for seminaries. I'm grateful for the value that they bring by providing a structured plan of biblical and practical and theological training. But the work of training church leaders is the domain of the local church. We can use the seminary to assist us in our training, but local churches are the places where pastors and teachers and counselors and missionaries are identified and called and supported and equipped. In the New Testament, leaders of local churches come from local churches. We, we know leaders have been developed in Antioch. Why? Because the leadership team has grown since we saw them in chapter 11. It was Saul, and then Saul ran out of he, he ran out of bandwidth, excuse me, it was Barnabas, and he ran out of bandwidth, and he went down to get Saul, and now it's Saul and Barnabas, and what do they begin to do? It's between the lines, We're not, it's not directly stated, but where do these lead, new leaders come from? They come from the training that they did for a year. People, they, they see these guys asking questions, and they're interacting, and they're like, man, that's, that's a leader right there. That's, a, that's somebody God is raising up to be a part of, of the leadership team. And so they add and cultivate and mentor new men to, to join this growing leadership team. And the men are as follows. Besides Barnabas and Saul, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch. Now this is, this is an interesting group of guys. Simeon has a Jewish name, but his nickname is Niger, meaning dark or black. Most likely a reference to the color of his skin. Now you say, well, this is, this is racist. No, it's just a statement of fact. He's the guy that is darker than the rest of us. 
That's who he is. Uh, he certainly brought more to the table than the color of his skin, right? He was an equipped, he was a prophet or a teacher. He was there because of his spiritual gifting and spiritual calling, but he was also different from the others on the leadership team and reflective of the differences in this multi-ethnic congregation that we saw back in chapter 11. Then we have Lucius of Cyrene, located in North Africa. He would have most certainly been a Gentile. And then we have Menean, who was well-connected politically. So we've got a, a Jew from Cyprus. We've got a Jewish rabbi. We've got a Gentile. We've got uh, perhaps a Jewish proselyte who is called dark or black. And then we have a guy who is well-connected politically. I mean, that's, a, that's quite a leadership team. Covers all kinds of different backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, connected politically, disconnected politically, has nothing to do with Rome, has everything to do with Rome. And here's what I want you to see, church, the diversity of the leadership team reflected the diversity of the church. The church would have been thinking about the nations and impacting the nations because they have a leadership team that's drawn from among the nations. I love what Marita says here. The congregation's diversity would no doubt shock some people. But it would have attracted many to the Savior. Outsiders from everywhere could have seen this group of people and they could have imagined themselves joining the Antioch congregation. Of course, the church that God uses to set apart missionaries is, is characterized more than just diversity of cultural and ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds. It's also characterized by a radical unity, right? It's unity in diversity. And they are united in their love for Christ, their devotion to Christ, their desperation for Christ. How do we know that? Because of what we see next. They, they're, they're worshiping and fasting. Worship is devotion. Fasting is desperation for the king who made them one. They, in verse 2, doesn't mean just the leadership team. It, it's a reference to the entire church. You see what the whole church is doing. It's not just the leaders being super spiritual and everybody else living their lives during the week to come back and get a holy touch from the leaders. No, the, the whole church is leaning into their life in Christ. Everybody, they're worshiping and, and they're fasting. Y'all know what fasting is? I did that starting on Friday. It's an involuntary fast. We need to reclaim fasting in the church today. Some of you are unable to fast due to physical conditions. I understand that. But you can fast from Facebook. You can fast from TV and social media. And many of you can, can literally fast from food, at least for a lunch or a breakfast or a dinner. Fasting. Reminding ourselves that with every wave of pain, of hunger, there's a far greater need in our lives than physical food. And it is Jesus who is the bread of life. They are fasting. And... What's interesting about this text is the way that worship and fasting hang together. And I've been praying about this this week, and I don't know what the solution is, but it seems like they're coming to corporate worship as those who have fasted. And we know from early church history, this, this isn't in the text, but we know from early church history that they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, and then they would have something afterward called the Love Feast. 
So stay tuned. I don't know how this might work out, but what if on the Sundays that we shared in the Lord's Supper, rather than having a big, nice sausage casserole in our 3D groups, which is amazing, but what if we fasted from like Saturday night, missed Sunday breakfast, had worship together, and then had a big meal on the days that we have the Lord's Supper? I'm just thinking, I'm not saying that's a new program that we're going to launch, but they're bringing into worship a desperation for the presence of God, a yearning and a hunger to encounter Christ in their time together of worship. Worship was not an interruption of a life that was otherwise devoted to distraction. It was the overflow of a life that had been rescued by Jesus and which was grateful for Jesus and which was desperate for Jesus. Do do you see how this church might end up being the church that would impact the nations? Within this context of devotion and desperation, the Spirit says to the church, we aren't told how, by the way, but the Spirit speaks to the church. To the gathered church, He says to them, set apart your best leaders. Set apart your long-timers. Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which He has called them. There are so many implications in those little words. First, it means that the next generation of leaders had matured and grown enough that the Spirit was ready to call some of the other leaders away and let them continue to do the work. Barnabas and Saul, though trusted leaders, though they're the the bosses, right? They've been there longest and they identified these other leaders and called them out. Though they are the long timers, they are still subject to the Spirit's leading as clarified and confirmed in the church. Marita says this, the Spirit gave the word, then the congregation affirmed the mission. Don't miss that. The Spirit appoints people to the work of overseas missions in a way that the whole church sees it. Don't let that just blow by you. This is a biblical principle. The Spirit appoints people to the work of missions, and really any form of church leadership, in a way that the whole church sees it. There are no singly called, privately called people to the work of the church. God calls people within a church for the service to the church in a way that the church sees it. Finally, the church is willing to give up great leaders for the sake of the mission. For the first time, people are being sent out without being persecuted They're just willingly sending out out their best. And let me say something. Here's a principle that I want us to get this morning, church. When the church gives up good things for the sake of our great king, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. When the church gives up good things, known things, familiar things, comfortable things for the sake of our saving king, that's the work of the Holy Spirit among his people. In verse 3, we see that the church commissions Barnabas and Saul. They lay their hands upon him and they send them off on mission. But before they lay their hands, before they uh, formalize, in a sense, their support of these men and their commissioning of these men, what do they do? Once more, they fast and they pray. Knowing that it's not enough that they would just be called out by God, but God must continue with them. It's not that they'd just be called by God, but that God would sustain them and empower them and provide for them. In other words, the church does not appoint church leaders presumptively, but dependently, with desperation for God to continue what He started in these men. They depend on the Lord. 
No doubt asking the Spirit for what? To, to fill Barnabas and Saul with divine power for this assignment and for King Jesus to be magnified among the nations as they go in His name. Here at North Roanoke, you, you may know that we are praying that God would allow us to see five or more missionary units to be called out by the Spirit and to be in training or on the ground by 2030. He's already beginning that work my prayer is that God would continue to help us be and become the sort of church that's a, a missionary incubator. That we would cultivate leaders from diverse backgrounds and experiences and be united in our hunger and desperation for the Lord's presence. That's the sort of church that God will use to impact this valley and reach the world for the glory of King Jesus. And as He does it, church, we need to understand that when we send people out on mission and when we go out on mission to the Roanoke Valley ourselves, we are engaged in a war. It's warfare. And we desperately need, just like Saul and Barnabas needed, we need the Spirit as we go out in Jesus' name. We see that it's war in verses 4 through 12. Would you continue to hear with me the word of the Lord? So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Elamus is Bar-Jesus. Another name for Bar-Jesus, if that's confusing. Verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will, you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeing, seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So we've seen first in verses 1 through 3 the sort of church that God uses to call out missionaries to lead a church in the pursuit of God's mission, even a mission that would extend overseas as it does in this missionary journey of Barnabas and Saul. And now we see what happens when we take the gospel to new people, new territories, new places. Well, what happens? A variety of things can happen. Some will be open to hearing. Some will oppose the gospel. And some, praise God, will believe on Jesus Christ. Some will be open to hearing. Some will oppose. And some will believe. In verse 4, Luke reminds us that Barnabas and Saul aren't departing for a vacation or an adventure that they planned of their own accord. What does it say? They are sent out by whom? By the Holy Spirit. 
God moved, God directed, God called, the church saw it, and they went. Unlike Jonah, who went down to the port city of Joppa to try and get away from the presence of God, the presence of God is moving them out in God's mission. These missionaries go to Seleucia, the port of Antioch, to head for Barnabas' home turf, the island of Cyprus. Now, we've already seen in Acts that the gospel has come to Cyprus on the lips of the Jewish Christians who were persecuted, but Acts 11 tells us that they only shared the gospel with Jews. So, the Gentiles on Cyprus still haven't heard the gospel. Now, in verse 5, despite the fact that some Jews have heard the gospel in Salamis, Barnabas and Saul keep this pattern up of going to the Jews first. They, along with their apprentice, John Mark, go to the Jewish synagogue and they proclaim the gospel there. And you say, well, what's the deal with that? Well, this is Paul's pattern throughout his missionary journeys. Do you remember what Paul writes in Romans 1.16? He says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Praise God, Jew and Gentile, everyone who believes. But then what does he say? First to the Jew and also to the Greek. Why is that? Well, the reason is the people who were taught for generations to look for the Messiah were to be the first to hear of their Messiah. Those who trusted and followed Jesus would enter the true kingdom of God, and those who rejected the king that they should have been expecting would have been without excuse. In verse 6, we learn these missionaries did not take a straight path across the island. Instead, they went throughout the whole island, indicating that they covered a whole lot of territory between these two cities of Salamis and Paphos. They, they worked their way into various pockets of people, sharing the gospel as they went. And when they finally come to Paphos, we learn in verse 6 through 8, that Barnabas and Saul come upon two men, Bar-Jesus, a Jewish false prophet and magician whose name, interestingly, means son of the Savior, and Sergius Paulus, who is a proconsul in the Roman government, likely with authority over the entire island. Sergius Paulus is a, an important leader. And he apparently wants some sort of spiritual help and guidance in his work of leadership. And uh, as a Roman, Romans often valued omens and divination. And Marita says they thought Jews had inside information on spiritual matters. So Bar-Jesus, like, he's got both. He's ethnically a Jew and he's allied with the forces of darkness and the practices of, of magic and sorcery. So he leverages this to get a position attached to Sergius Paulus, which presumably is quite profitable for him. So Bar-Jesus, though a Jew who should have been looking for King Jesus and his salvation, is instead an imposter whose name is Son of Salvation, and he's misleading people regarding salvation, including the highest-ranking Roman official on the island. But notice what God's Word says in verse 7 about Sergius Paulus. He's a man of intelligence. 
I love that description. The Bible does not frequently call someone a man of intelligence or a woman of intelligence, but Sergius Paulus is intelligent. We're not told why or what the criteria are for knowing that he's intelligent, but here's my suspicion. He's, he's intelligent in this way. His soul still wasn't satisfied by the sorcery of Bar-Jesus. He was open to hearing the word of God. When the gospel came to the island, he said, hey, why not at least give it a hearing? The master of the island wants to hear from the missionaries. He has no reason to dabble with these guys. He's got all the power, all the money, all the wealth, all the influence. But the missionaries come with the word of God and Sergius Paulus wants to hear it because his soul was still dissatisfied. The idolatrous, self-serving sorcery that motivated Bar-Jesus had simply left him as he began. Empty, searching, desperate, wanting to commune with the God of the universe. And he was intelligent. He kept searching. He was open to the hearing the gospel. He was not so deluded by his own power, or prestige, or position, or his present attempts at spiritual satisfaction that he would not hear the gospel Church, why do we send missionaries to new places and new peoples? Because there will be people there who want to hear the gospel. There will be people who've been deluded for years and for generations, and they hear the gospel, and it opens their hearts and opens their eyes to behold Christ. It is why we also see our neighborhoods and our city as a place to to bring the gospel, as our neighborhoods change. The neighborhood right behind our church, there are people who are in their 90s and they are going to face eternity soon. And as they pass and their houses are sold, there's a brand new generation of people moving in right behind North Roanoke Baptist Church. As our city has gone from a a railroad city to a city that is characterized really by the the medical complex of Carillion Roanoke Memorial Hospital, we've seen new generations and new professionals and our, our city changing in dramatic ways. We don't retreat from that. We re engage it. We go with the gospel. Why? Because some will be willing to hear the gospel. That's why we pray for and develop and send out missionaries whom the Spirit sets apart. We go because there will be some who since they are broken they will want to hear the word and whenever and wherever we find the word of God brought by a child of God filled with the spirit of God the battle for God is on and we know we go knowing that God will reach all kinds of people. Even Sergius Paulus the leader of the island the gospel will be received by leaders and by the lowly. It will be received by those with plenty and those who are poor when they truly hear the word of God, the message of a God who came down to rescue those who could otherwise never bring themselves up. As a quick pastoral aside, I want you to notice that the call to missions is not restricted to a call to reach people who are financially impoverished. There's a, there's a vision, I think, that we get in our minds sometimes that maybe starts in our childhood, that missions is always like in a, a straw hut in Western Africa. And it certainly can be. 
and indeed should be. But notice that the first recorded conversion of the first missionary journey in Acts is that of a Roman proconsul. A call to missions might place you in a boardroom with Apple in Beijing or in a dung hut in Western Africa. And if he calls you to be in Roanoke for the rest of your life, and selfishly, many of you, I hope he does, you live at the ends of the earth. No one in Acts knew that Roanoke existed. You are at the ends of the earth, and if God is truly calling you to plant your roots here and your life here, then you're still supposed to be on mission, sharing the gospel, rich, poor, and in between, red, yellow, black, and white, no matter where they're from. If you can speak their language and they can speak your language, give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, because some will be open to hear it. Praise God. But while Sergius Paulus is spiritually open, Bar-Jesus is not happy. He's threatened. His influence and power and income and prestige is about ready to be flushed down the toilet. In verse 8, he opposes the gospel with the only thing he knows how to do. He opposes the gospel with deception. He tries to turn, verse 8, Sergius Paulus from the faith. He's hearing the word of God. Faith is welling up within him. He's going to be converted. And Sergius Paulus is like, we're not going to have any of that. Who's going to butter my biscuit next week? The word turn means to mislead. Like all cults that mention Jesus, but strip grace out of the gospel and make salvation about us and what we can do and our supposed goodness, Bar-Jesus is trying to keep Sergius Paulus from Jesus. And in verse 9, Saul confronts him. He confronts him pretty seriously, doesn't he? And it's in this verse that Saul goes from being the supporter of Barnabas to the leader of the missionary team. From this point forward, Saul is going to be called by his Roman name, Paul. Nowhere else in the rest of the book will he be called Saul. Now, it's interesting. When we think about the story of Saul, we often think that that God changed his name in his conversion. That's actually not what Acts says. Acts says that Paul just has a Roman name. It was just what he was called in Greco-Roman culture. When you're talking to him Jew to Jew, he's Saul. When you're talking to him in a Greco-Roman culture, his name is Paul. So from this point forward, because he's on mission in in a Greco-Roman context, Paul is called Paul. And praise God, since I think of Paul as Paul and not of Saul for the rest of our series in Acts, I can just say Paul. Isn't that great? Maybe not for you, but for me, I've been trying to say Saul, and now we get to say Paul. So Paul rises up to confront Bar-Jesus. And here's what we need to know, church. When we send people out expecting, we send people out, we do so expecting that some are going to want to hear, but also with the understanding that some will actively oppose the advance of the gospel. Missions is impossible without the Holy Spirit. 
It is the Holy Spirit who empowers, who convicts, who calls, who converts, who draws sinners in the hearing of the gospel. It is likewise the Spirit who gives wisdom, insight, and boldness that is needed when the gospel faces opposition. And in this moment, do you see what it says of Paul? He is filled with the Spirit and he stares at the sorcerer. I wish I could have seen that moment. The forces of darkness against a spirit-filled Paul rising to his calling, recognizing what's at stake in the life of Sergius Paulus as he's trying to distort the gospel and keep someone from heaven and eternal bliss and to ruin their lives. And he rises and he delivers a message to cut right through that sheep-like apparel of this conniving wolf. Bar-Jesus' name might mean son of the Savior, but Paul says, I know who you really are, you son of the devil. You're an enemy of all righteousness, of everything pertaining to righteousness. There's nothing good in you. You might have a nice charade on the outside. You might have a name that resonates the word salvation, but you're a charlatan, you're a pretender, you're a distorter, and you're trying to keep one of the little ones out of the kingdom of God. And I'm not going to let it happen. The Spirit of God's not going to let it happen. No, I preach a gospel that is of a righteousness that must come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No magic, no hocus pocus. No twisted, self-glorifying message. No misrepresentation of the truth with a malicious heart. You know what you're trying to do, Bar-Jesus. You're trying to make crooked what God already made straight when He sent Jesus. The way to heaven runs straight through the cross of Christ. No little in runs, no little what I can do or what you can do. It is Christ and Christ alone. It is I deserve death, hell, and the grave, but God came down and took my place. He bore my wrath, and on the third day he rose from the grave, and if I trust in him, I will be declared righteous, not by what I've done, but by what he's done, and I will have assurance of life everlasting with my king, and he empowers me by his spirit to be on mission with him and to serve him forevermore. And you're trying to mess that up, you son of a devil. Y'all hear You see, when we, when we read passages like this, there's usually someone thinking this. Well, that's a little bit extreme. Or that's, that's not very kind. Would it be kinder to let both men perish for eternity in hell? We've got to remember what's at stake when the gospel is on the line. Bar Jesus is trying to bar the way to Jesus. And Jesus himself said, It would be better for someone if a millstone were hung around their neck and they were cast into the sea than that they should cause one of these little ones to sin. The sin of what? Of unbelief in Christ. In John 8, 44, Jesus himself says, the kind and gracious Jesus, the supreme example of generosity and love and hospitality, Jesus says to Jews who are opposing him as God's Son and Savior, you are of your father, the devil. 
Church, it is not kindness but cowardice when we have an opportunity to confront intentional opposition to the gospel with the truth in the power of the Spirit and we refuse. Some of us need to open our mouths afresh at what we're seeing all around us. Sometimes we think opposition means we're doing something wrong. Well, I, if I get opposed in sharing the gospel, I, maybe I didn't do it right. Wrong. If you face opposition, you're probably doing it right. We are not called to make peace with the forces of darkness that are actively trying to keep people out of the kingdom. Rather, we must confront them in the power of the Spirit and with confidence in God and the gospel, knowing that God can remove every obstacle that Satan presents and trusting that some will see our Spirit-given boldness. They will turn from their sin and they will believe on Christ. Look at verse 11 and 12. God graciously allows Sergius Paulus to see that Bar-Jesus is spiritually bankrupt as Paul pronounces God's curse upon him. Interestingly, what happens to Bar-Jesus is going blind like, like a mist falling. It's, it's recounted with a level of detail that suggests that somebody must have reported back to Luke Bar-Jesus' personal experience of going blind in this moment. Now, we don't know what happens to Bar-Jesus, but perhaps, maybe, God's curse of blindness opened his spiritual eyes to see that he was walking in darkness before he faced everlasting judgment in utter darkness. We don't know what happens to Bar-Jesus, but, but I hope the fact that he finally couldn't see allowed him to see what he wasn't seeing. Regardless, the primary point that Luke wants us to make, wants us to see, is that once more the Spirit is stronger than Satan. Satan will not stop God's mission to the nations. As Stott writes, the Holy Spirit overthrow, overthrew the evil one, the apostle confounded the sorcerer, and the gospel triumphed over the occult. Satan is rendered powerless in this moment. He is powerless to stop the advance of King Jesus overtaking new hearts in new territory. And he's powerless to deliver Bar-Jesus from God's curse upon him that he might learn his lesson. In this moment, Sergius Paulus, as he sees sorcery conquered by the God of true salvation who has been proclaimed to him in the gospel, what does he do? It's a, it's a simple word, but it's so profound. He believes. He believes. He believes that everything else that he's heard is a lie and that Christ is truth. He believes that Jesus is the straight way of salvation. He believes that Christ is king. And he believes not just the miracle, right, but the lesson of the miracle. Because he's astonished not at the miracle, but, but at what? At the teaching of the Lord. God shows up. He grants a miraculous curse of Bar-Jesus, and the miracle gives Paul the opportunity to deliver the gospel message, and this Gentile, with apparently little or no background in the Scriptures, is gloriously saved. Church, I want to be a church that cultivates missionaries and also evangelists to our own city. That's going to happen where we're desperate for and devoted to our King. And then as we go on mission across the street, downtown and around the world, we've got to understand we can go with confidence. Some are going to hear, some are going to oppose, and when we're opposed, the Spirit will meet us in that moment, and God's Word will triumph. 
This morning, I want to encourage us in two ways. Would we evaluate our own lives? To see, are are we individually in our families being those sorts of spirit-filled, spirit-led, desperate, hungry people that would allow our church to be a missionary incubator? And then secondly, are we, are we living on mission? Are we proclaiming the gospel in the Spirit's power, believing He will overcome opposition and open hearts to behold the glory of our King until He comes? And, and some of you might say, I, I've been so distracted by so many other things and I, I just needed to be reminded that God wins. Maybe God is calling you afresh this morning back to, to desperation for Christ and devotion to Christ. Maybe some of you, the Spirit of God is calling to go. To spend your life and to offer it as a living sacrifice to Christ among a people with little to no access to the gospel. To go knowing that you will encounter some who want to hear, you'll encounter opposition in the kingdom. If the Spirit is calling you to go, the Spirit will empower you and fill you to fulfill God's work. No matter what God's saying, I pray that if you know Him, that you would be people who are sharing as one that you know He has already sent out. God, help us in this. Would you pray with me? Lord, we we need you. Thank you. uh, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who, who moves and works among us. God, I, I pray that in this time of response that you would give us the liberty as a church to see where we really are and to see how much we really need you. And God, that you would work as only you can. There's, there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing these mu- musicians can do. But we need you. And God, whatever... Whatever stands between us and you and a a white-hot devotion to Christ, God, I pray you would remove it, that Christ might be magnified in this body and in, in this valley and around the world, for he is worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.